Here's a funny story. So yesterday morning, I get up. My, my wife works the night shift at the hospital last night. So it's, she gets home about 7.45 in the morning. And I was up and I was kind of hungry. And I buy this raisin bread from Costco. Anybody raisin bread? You ever had raisin bread? Go get some raisin bread. It is a gift from God in heaven. So I get these two loaves for like three bucks. So I throw one in the freezer and I take this other one and I, and I put them in the toaster. She comes home. She's all, oh, it smells so good. What would you make? And I said, raisin bread in the toaster. like the height of my, my culinary skills right there. Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app. It's called YouVersion. Uh, you click on Live and YouVersion. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get all the verses and the notes and the questions on the back as well. Uh, on the tables for the sermon notes, on the bottom right-hand corner inside, we have this QR code this week. And when you scan this with a QR reader in your smartphone, it'll take you to a page on our website. And what we would like people to start doing, and we'll just put, you can be anonymous, it's okay, but we'd like to start posting your story. You know, what, what has Jesus done in your life? What, what, what does Element as a church mean to you? It's a place where I get free food on Sunday mornings. You know, whatever it is, I don't know. You know, but kind of, we want to start posting so people know what, what God is doing in this community and what he intends to do in the community out there through it. So we put that on there. It's also on our website. You can go there as well, but... If you're like all lazy like I am half the time, I just kind of scan things. Like, oh, yeah. Like, anybody ever have one come up on the TV and says, scan this code? Like, really? Really? Peanuts? You know, I don't, you know, whatever. So I'm good with that. Uh, again, next week is baptisms. You're all invited. Don't forget, hopefully the weather will be nicer. You know, I keep talking about, like, this soup. J.D. Morris last week goes, oh, that soup you've been talking about, it's at Old Town Market. And I'm like, what? And it is. It was at Old Town Market. I go, all these weeks I've been asking for this soup, and you know where it is, and you don't tell me. What is up with that? Okay, and, and I kind of figured out exactly what this chicken tortilla soup from Old Town Market tastes like. It's like the inside of a chimichanga. Huh? Yeah. He didn't, he just, if you didn't have to like have that little wrapper called a tortilla to hold it in, it'd be so much better, right? Yeah, and that's what it, it's like. I'm sure it can't be good for me at all, but it is so yummy. If you've never been here before, you have no idea what I'm talking about, and I'm really sorry. Not too sorry, but a little bit. Okay, why don't you stay on me reading the God's Word. We'll get going here. It's Ecclesiastes 4, verse 10. It says, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us in our hearts and convict us of community and connectedness, and what you have called us to as a people, walking this life together, glorifying and honoring who you are, that you would make us truly those who lift each other up, and who lift you up, most importantly. Amen. Have a seat. So this is Genesis. This is week 11. If you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis chapter 4. That's kind of where we're at today. Uh, Genesis starts with this whole idea that God makes everything good. That is the word tov in the Hebrew text. But one thing that isn't good in Genesis 2.18 is that the man is alone. Genesis 2.18 says, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now that's not just true because Adam's single. It's not just true of marriage. It's true of all of our lives. And so God makes for Adam a, a helper suitable for him, a companion. And yet they get together and they sin and they fall. They experience death and separation in the relationship with each other and with God. But the ideal of community and relationship is still what God intended for his people to live within. 
Now, churches a lot of times will tell you that you have a God-shaped hole inside of your heart. In one sense, that's a little bit true. But God has also placed within every person a human-shaped hole that he promises not to fill. And money and achievement and busyness and books and having all kinds of, if you're a cat lady, all kinds of cats, it's not going to fill that hole. God intends for that to be filled by people. He created us to live in community. That's how we were meant to live. And so when you get to the first brothers in Genesis chapter 4, you see one kills the other out of jealousy. Cain kills Abel because Abel worships God more than Cain. And so Cain decides, well, if he worships God better than me, if I just get rid of, if I just get rid of Abel, then I will worship God better than Abel because he'll be dead. So he buries his brother in a hole and kills him. You think that Cain would be like the dad of an American cheerleader or something. Nobody watched the news. Seriously? Nobody? Golly. Fell flat. Here's my cultural reference. Falls flat every service. I don't know what's wrong with you people. All right? So verse 9, what happens is God shows up. Cain uh, says, where is Abel, your brother? This is rhetorical. God already knows where Abel is. Because when we sin, God knows he's trying to get a response out of Cain. And you see that Cain doesn't seek God, but God is always seeking his children, and he seeks out Cain. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He's like, am I the babysitter? Did you lose him? What he's trying to do is place all of his sin upon God. This is like us. When we are confronted with our sin, we look at somebody else who confronts us and says, well, what's wrong with you? Well, you did this one. We try and throw it all back upon them. See, we all think we're able. We all think we're just a victim. But we're all truly like Cain. And so God says to Cain, what have you done? And last week I told you, this is the idea that God speaks, but Cain fails to listen. This is like you and I, most of our lives, if we go, in ch- to, go to churches, you'll hear, you know, the problem is sin, the answer is Jesus. The problem is sin, the answer is Jesus. The problem is, the answer is, I got a lot more Jesuses than sin. That's interesting. But, you know, and then you know, husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands, children honor your parents. All that you have and do belongs to God, period. And yet we don't listen. And God is constantly speaking. We are supposed to listen. I mean, our problem is Cain's problem is that we don't listen. We think that we're always the good guys. We look at the Bible's text and we think all the good guys in the Bible, that's us. And all the bad guys, that's the people I don't like. That's who they're like, those people. But no, we are all exactly like Cain. I know this because when we know what God wants and then something we want kind of goes against what God wants, we pick what we want every time. We know we are all like Cain. Cain, the only good guy in all the scriptures, is Jesus. So Genesis 4.10, God then speaks to Cain and he says, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. You have dishonored the ground with your brother's blood. Now the ground will fight against you. And this is where the big debate now comes in because Cain now speaks to God. This is where you begin to see Cain's heart after God seeks him out. And now there's two views on what happens next. I'm going to give you the most popular and then I'll give you what I believe, which is right. It's not supposed to be so funny, but okay. Verse 13, (laughs) Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Now, the most popular view of this says that Cain is unrepentant. He is now complaining. He's saying that God's not fair. I only killed my brother and stuck him in a hole. What's real wrong with that? If so, then Cain is an unrepentant, whiny man. The second view is that punishment in the Hebrew text is the same word for sin or the punishment of sin. Cain could actually be saying, my sin is more than I can bear. And if so, then that's repentance. God comes to him and says, you killed your brother, you have run from me, you have lied. And Cain says, I cannot believe what I have done. I can't bear to live with my sin. 
that would mean that God actually busted through to Cain and Cain pulled his head out of wherever he has been kept it and, and said, you know, I have sinned. I've done something wrong. That the first man to die wasn't of old age. It was his older brother killing the younger one just because his younger brother worshipped God more fervently and freely than Cain did. And Cain realizes this is my fault. There's a very interesting thing that happens in the text because what you see is you see Cain's biggest fear. And his fear is that he might actually be alone. God says, you will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain's reply is, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. He will have no community. He will have no connection. First with God, because he points that out in the text, and secondly with other people, and he becomes fearful even for his own life. Again, Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now what I want you to do is in your mind, I want you to picture the skinniest person you know. I really hope it's not me, all right? But just picture in your mind, and then right next to that, in your mind, I want you to picture the, the biggest person you know. And I know you're going, I hope that's not me, right? And there's, so picture those two. Now, right in the middle between those two, there's probably a healthy spot where it's the right food and the right exercise, you know, kind of the, the right shape, that kind of thing. And I thought, you know, as the body is nourished by food, so our soul is to be nourished by the people around us. And if you live like a monk in isolation all the time, you're going to be really skinny. But if you're on the other side, you just spend your time with other people, and you don't place God first in your life, you don't listen to Him, you're always going with people's opinions, you're going to get really fat. You've got to be in the middle, someone who first prioritizes Christ in our lives and secondly, understanding the people around you come and they will help to shape you into who God intends for you to be. Because we should be, be shaped first and foremost by Jesus, but then we are secondly shaped by the people around us. God uses people to form people. This is why what happens between you and somebody else is never a human-to-human interaction. It's not just merely that, it's much more. God's Spirit longs to be powerfully at work in everybody's life, in every encounter that we have. This is why Cain is like, I don't want to be a restless wanderer on the earth. We are not meant to be restless wanderers on the earth. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. This is the word that we call fellowship. Now, if you've been around church, and fellowship is like this has terrible connotations like basements and punch and awkward conversation, but that's not what it's meant to be. This is meant to be the word for these, re- these living waters that flow between two people as God is involved in the midst of that relationship. We're not supposed to be able to live without it. There's an academic journal, and it's called the Journal of Happiness Studies. I am not making this up. Here's the URL if you want to go buy a few copies of it. We put it on the website just so you know I'm not making these things up. So this journal is Happiness Studies, and what they do is they publish studies using the tools of research to identify what makes life connect and joyful. And so they looked at what distinguishes joyful people from less joyful people. And one factor consistently separates those two groups. And it's not how much money you have. It's not your health. It's not your security. It's not your attractiveness. Thank God for a lot of us, right? It's not your IQ. It's not your career success. What distinguishes consistently more joyful people from less joyful people is the presence of rich, deep, joy-producing, life-changing, meaningful relationships. That is what produces it. Spending meaningful time with people who care about us is, is indispensable to living the life God intends for us. There's a guy named Robert Putnam, and he writes this book called Bowling Alone. And, he, and it's a study of 25 to 50 years of looking at different people in the world and how we are tending to be more and more isolated as things go on. This is what he says in the book. The single most common finding from half a century's research on life satisfaction, not only from the U.S., but around the world, is that happiness is best predicted by the breadth and depth of one's social connections. 
See, connectedness is not the same thing as knowing lots of people. I mean, you can have 500 friends on Facebook and nobody still likes you. I mean, true connection is completely different than that. It's getting out. It is meeting people one-on-one, face-to-face. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is our capacity for this connection because God created human beings to live in connection. This is why when he made Adam, he said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now leave your finger in Genesis 4 and flip over to Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians 3, it's like, you give me the easiest book and now I've got to flip the Middle New Testament to find a book? Really? Bring a smartphone. You'll be right there already. All right? uh, Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus and he paints a picture of what connectedness is supposed to bring. In Ephesians 3, 17-19, Paul says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, with everybody, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, with all the saints together. See, when a tree puts roots in the ground, those roots are able to take in nutrients and water. The tree grows to full life and full strength, but only when it's rooted. This is the same thing for you and I. Our souls are rooted and nourished, first in the love and the grace of God, but secondly in other people. And we experience this both physically and emotionally. We connect with God and with others. Every life has to have this connectedness. This is one of the reasons why at Element we're constantly pushing our gospel communities. They're not just small groups. They're communities centered around the gospel that are connecting you guys to each other and moving forward to live life together. That's the point. I mean, how necessary is it? Donald Winnicott, who is a British scientist, looked at children as they grow up. And these are some of the findings that he found. He said, children who play in close proximity with their mother are more creative than children playing at a distance from her. Children are naturally inventive, curious, and more likely to take risks in what might be called the circle of connectedness. When they're in this circle, they take more risks. They show more energy. If they fall down, they're more likely to get back up. They laugh more than children who are outside the circle. And it's not because the mom is doing for the child what he can't do for himself. It's not that the mom is solving their problems or generating ideas on on how to play. What it is, is that when love is present, when the child feels safe and cared for, something gets released in their life, and they're more free to live as they were meant to live. They get a little bit stronger and bolder and more creative. When you and I begin to live in real community, it's not just that you receive stuff from other people. You actually become more of who God intended for you to be. He says, as children grow older, they were more capable of abstract thought. They could think outside the box. They had more and more friendships. Their circle actually gets bigger. Like when they're a year old, you know, their, their circle's like, you know, I don't know, three inches. You know, when they're like three years old, it's like three feet. When they're five, it's the size of your house. When they're a teenager, it's the size of the planet. You know, because they just want to get, get away. But you have to understand this in understanding Cain's fear. Do you know that it has even been showed that physically there are destructive aspects of being isolated? Animals that are isolated, they've researched this, and they found that they have more extensive arterial sclerosis than animals, or than animals that are not isolated. See, there's a story, true story, of this guy, and he had this dog for a while, and then he got a cat. I don't know why, but he gets a cat. Okay. And the dog and the cat, they fight for like 10 years. And after 10 years, the cat dies first, as it should. <laughs> My wife's not here this morning. It's okay for me to say this stuff. We got this cat. It is almost 20 years old. It's like... It's like... It, anyway, so... Uh, the, the, cat, the, the, the cat dies after 10 years. You know what happens to the dog even though they fought this whole time? The dog stops eating. After six weeks, the dog dies too. I mean, that is the power of connection. You know, it, it has shown that people who are socially disconnected are between two and five times more likely to die from any cause than those who have close family friends or relationships around them. 
I, I've told you this many times, that people who have bad health habits like cigarette smoking or overeating or elevated blood pressure or physical inactivity who, but still remain connected actually live longer than those who have great health habits but are disconnected. Winston Churchill, great guy, one of the main people who saw the overthrow of Hitler in World War II, he had a wonderful marriage with his wife. as deeply committed to his family, his friends, his nation, his work, but his health habits were terrible. In any biography on this guy, you're like, how does this guy even get around? His diet's awful, he smokes cigars all the time, he probably drank way too much, has weird sleep habits, completely sedentary most of the time in his life, and he lives to be nearly 90 years old. Somebody once asked him, Mr. Churchill, do you ever exercise? He replies, the only exercise I get is serving as a pallbearer for my friends who died while they were exercising. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying you should exercise and you should eat well and all that, but the point is that our connection is even more important than all of those things. In 1 John 3.14, John is speaking about others and love and connection and living the life that Jesus calls us to. And he says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. When we live in isolation, we're more likely to give into temptation in our lives, into discouragement. We're more likely to become self-absorbed, spend all of our time and our money on ourselves, become very selfish. And not only do we suffer when we live disconnected from everybody else, but other people who have God has placed around us who He intends for our lives to touch, they get cheated out of the love that God intends for us to give to them. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this as, Loners who care only for themselves spit on the common good. It's a great way to paraphrase that. We were designed to come alive through connection. This does not mean you've got to become an extrovert and go and talk to... I talked to somebody about this after first service. You don't got to go and talk to everybody. I mean, some of the shyest people I know have some of the richest and deepest friendships. But love, you have to understand, is mostly something you do. It, it's not something you always feel. Connection is marked by servanthood. This is something Cain failed to understand in his life. I, I once read a book where a therapist is asking a client how he knew that his marriage of 30 years was coming to an end. And he says, it was when she stopped putting toothpaste on my toothbrush in the morning. Like, what? What happened when they first got married, whoever got up first would put a roll of toothpaste on the other person's toothbrush in the morning. And then somewhere along the line, they stopped squeezing for the other person, only squeezed for themselves, and that's the beginning of the end, apparently. Because you're starting to lose. My wife doesn't do that for me, and I'd be really creeped out if I did. What, like, is she trying to tell me something? I know it's the morning. I got a brush. Got it. Right. But this is the whole idea of servanthood and noticing things around you. This is like a son who would drive five hours to go and spend his birthday with his, or her birthday with his mom. You know, it's, it's like a friend who mentions a book maybe that they're interested in. And you remember that and you're out somewhere and you see that book and you, and you pick it up for them or you Kindle gift it to them or something like that. And maybe it's like a middle-aged couple who, who's in a restaurant and they see maybe another couple, maybe from Element or someone that, somewhere that they know, and they don't have a whole lot of money, but they're trying to go out and have a date night. And they see this and they recognize this and they pay the bill for them and not that couple never even knows. You know, maybe it's a dad who knows his daughter likes a clean car, so he sneaks over at night and washes their car for her. Maybe it's a gospel community who's emailing or calling each other throughout the week and making sure that they're expressing care for each other. You know, there's three laws of real estate called location, location, location. I was with one of my friends yesterday, and we were kind of talking about this. And I have this house over in like that side of town, and we drove by this house over in Orchid that sold for like just, just crappy, dumpy little place, and that sold for more than mine's worth like over there because it's all about location. location. I'm like, ah, that location kills me every time. Okay. The, the, the three laws of relationship in the same way are observation, observation, observation. People who give life to others are those who notice. 
See, when we work to truly observe other people, self-forgetfulness starts to come up in our soul and we start to grow because we're not so self-centered about everything. One of the marks of the early church was their commitment to this idea of connection because they knew it doesn't just happen. So they ate meals together all the time with glad and sincere hearts. They got together all the time. Over time, that started to kind of go by the wayside. That value began to fade. So the writer of Hebrews in 10, 24, and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, you keep committed to community even when it's hard. Robert Putnam writes this in his book, uh, Bowling Alone. As a rule of thumb, if you belong to no groups but you decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. It is difficult to imagine anyone not interested in cutting their risk of dying in half. I mean, maybe you want to talk to our like, GC coaches and say, i got a new motto for our GCs. Join a GC or die. My great motto, right? That, 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 should, that should be it, but nobody would understand it. It's, gospel community is about loving and giving and this community that's centered around the gospel. I always find it really strange when, when you watch sports team and they're having a really bad year or they got a really bad player, that guy comes up to bat or whatever, and everybody's like, boo! You know, when this is the guy who really needs the cheers the most. Imagine if people got behind him and actually tried to encourage him. Maybe he'd actually do better. I'm sure the boos don't actually help. Every day, you will come into contact with people in your lives. And people in your lives, they are eternal. And life has a way of just beating people down. Everyone needs a cheering section. Every life needs a shoulder to lean on every once in a while. Everyone needs to be lifted up in prayer. Everybody needs someone to come along and hug them sometimes. Every life needs to hear a voice saying, don't give up. See, the deepest words that God has rooted in our soul are the words, I love you. Romans 13.8 says, Owe nothing... Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Mother Teresa said, If you can't do great things, do little things with great love. If you can't do them with great love, do them with a little love. If you can't do them with a little love, do them anyway. You know, th- and this is community. Th- this, is, this is love. And Cain, after he sins and breaks relationship, knows all he is leaving because of his own sin and what he has done. He has destroyed the community that God had placed him into because of his sin. And sometimes, again, that's true for you and I as well. Our selfishness, our ego, our pride causes the death in the relationships around us. But the same thing can be true for Cain as for us, that God seeks him out, and we can change, and God can redeem us and restore us to community. You know, again, Genesis 4.12, God says, Your sin has consequences. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain says, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. I think Cain's response is repentance. Because God does what he always does. He forgives, he redeems, he restores hope. And why do I think that? Because Cain says, I'm going to be a wanderer. But God doesn't make him a wanderer. God protects him and people trying to kill him. God gives him a wife. God blesses him with children. God gives him a city to live in. God provides him with more brothers and sisters and creates a new community. This is the whole idea of the culmination of the book of Genesis. When you get to chapter 50, verse 20, a guy named Joseph is on his deathbed. and He's forgiving a grievous wrong that was done to him. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Here again, God redeems an evil man from an evil act and restores him. I once heard one commentator liken Cain to Paul in the New Testament because what Paul does is he goes out and tries to kill his Jewish brothers, Christians, who worship God more freely and he kills them out of jealousy. And Jesus comes to Paul just like God comes to Cain and Paul wakes up. And you read throughout the New Testament. 
Paul is always telling his testimony, always saying what God has done in his life. This is what God did in my life when Jesus met me. This is why we decided to put that QR reader thing in the notes this morning, so that you guys can actually write your story, because our testimony is important. Because people will be like, man, if God can love that knucklehead, maybe he can love me too. I mean, that's, that's the point of our testimony. I mean, going back to the baseball analogy, I don't ever see anybody spurring Cain on and cheering him on to good works. We all look you know, like, that's a terrible, terrible guy. Again, I asked you this last week. What, what would happen if God took the worst day of your life and wrote that down and that's all anybody ever knew about you? It's like, no, 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 that was just that one time that I, I did all this. No, no, all you know is that. And that's all you get. That'd be terrible. That's all we know of Cain. I mean, the only thing we get is that we knew that his mom thought he was the savior of the world, which most moms do, right, of their kids, right? And, you know, you don't know how he, he you know, treated his brothers the rest of the time. You, you don't know how he loved his wife. You don't know his athletic ability. You don't know any of this stuff. You just know that he got jealous of his brother and he killed him. And this is placed in the scriptures because the scriptures are the most honest book ever written so that we can identify and we can say, man, if God can love that knucklehead Cain, maybe he can love me too. See, Cain says, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Cain realizes what he deserves, that everything is a gift from God. I sometimes wonder if God would do this to us on like a much smaller scale. Like he'd show up one day and be like, give me your Bible. I'm going to give it to somebody who will actually read it. It's like, oh, no, I'll read it. I promise. promise." I mean, just just little things like that. What if he actually did that stuff? He doesn't and he's good and we just feel terrible if he did. But Cain is totally sobered up. He is no one without God. And so whoever finds me will kill me, verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, not so. That is because God is a good God. We are bad people and he is good. And God is not the God that Cain wanted. The God that Cain wanted was the one who's going to overlook the sin and not call him to account and just leave him alone let him do whatever he wanted. But, God, but Cain got the God that he needed. And that's the point. That's why so many religions today, a lot of the gods, they look just like us. You look through the scriptures, the God of the scriptures does not look like us at all, at all. Our God is free, and He is not the God we make, not the God we dream of. He is not even sometimes the God we hope for. But He is the God that we need because He is good and He is the only God. And He comes and calls us to a place of redemption. I mean, God is good. He is the real God. Good thing Cain got the real God. God says, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. He says, Cain, you belong to me. And it's not because Cain was good. It's because God was good and offered him mercy. And a lot of people read this and they get all cut up and just debate for hours. Oh, what was the mark? What was the mark? What was the, mark? the mark's not the point. It's not the point. God's redemption is the point of the chapter. Verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And here it is, And Cain knew his wife. And she conceived and bore Enoch. God is faithful. He restores Cain to a community, a family. That's grace. Now what you'll see next week, if you come back, you know, <laughs> Cain's family follows this totally poor example. But what you constantly see throughout the text is that God is the one who is always faithful. Now, I want to kind of wrap this up with the story that I heard. I think it was John Erpberg that told it, but I'm not sure. Uh, he says, you know, one day God goes up to the angels and he says, I got this idea. I'm going to make the family. And the angels are like, what is that? What is that? And God goes, well, I'm very excited about this idea. Of course, I'm excited about all my ideas because I'm God and all my ideas are good because I'm, I'm God. So the family is going to be the way that I connect people in community. And so it's going to work like this. Adults will take care of little strangers that show up. Like, are they going to get paid for it? No. The little strangers are actually going to cost them a whole lot of money by the end of it. And not only that, they, they won't even be able to talk at first. So they're just going to cry and scream. They're going to have to guess, you know, what, what do they really want right now? And they're going to make them lose a whole lot of sleep and make messes that they've got to clean up. It's going to be utterly vulnerable. Got to watch them 
And when it's two, it's going to learn, learn words like no and mine, and it'll throw tantrums. You know, that's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to admit puberty, right? And then they're going to hit this thing, and, and their bodies will go crazy, and they're going to get pimples, and their voices will crack, and their limbic systems will totally melt down on them. And then they'll grow up. And just when they're mature and beautiful and interesting and able to contribute, they'll move away. <laughs> that's the idea. What do you think? And angels are like, is anybody really going to sign up for that? Right? And then God gets really excited. God's like, you know, they won't even know why. They're just going to look at that little baby and those hands and their feet, and they're going to think that it's so beautiful, even though every baby looks the same, and they all look like Winston Churchill. <laughs> then one day, that little stranger's going to look up and smile, and it'll say, and, and it'll say, Dad, I or Mama, and they'll think, man, I just won the lottery. That, that's amazing. But it's jump, she, he goes, but they'll say Dad at first, because Dads are more nobler and kinder. And, and good, but Moms are good, too. So they'll say, Dad, I or Mama, and those, and those hands and arms will open up, and they'll either wrap around their finger or wrap around their neck, and those grown-ups will understand for the very first time why arms and hands were created. And what it's all about is about grace. Because children, the next generation, will learn that they are prized, that they are loved, and they belong before they've ever done a single thing. And the older generation will learn that when they give, they receive, and the more they give, the more they receive. And then one day, I will show up, and I will tell the human race, I am your father, and you are my son, and you are my daughter. And when they get it, when they really understand that, they will be completely undone. And see, this is Cain. He's like, Cain, what have you done? He says, my sin is more than I can bear. This is because he understood that God as a father was seeking him as his child and calling him home. And Cain is completely undone. Just like when we realize our sin and what we have done, we should be completely undone by the grace of our good God. That Jesus comes and he dies and raises from the dead because Cain spoke the truth. It is more than we can ever bear. And so our God comes and bears it for us. And our God comes and he calls us home home and we are meant to be a people who call each other home to live this life of great redemption and great hope in great community with each other this is one of the reasons at the end every week we point you guys to communion because communion is where we take that cracker and we break it like christ's body was broken for us we dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds us of this blood that was shed for you and i so we can be this people of redeemed and restored relationships with each other. The band is going to come up. And as they do, we invite you guys to sing uh, these songs. Allow your heart to reflect a little bit in this. Understanding who God is and, and what God has done and who He has called us to. To take communion. There's going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, maybe, I don't know, maybe your limbic system is melting down. You're in puberty and you just need prayer for that. But, you know, maybe you're like, God is my Father and I'm starting to begin to understand that. And I'd really like someone to pray for me so I would get that a little better. Go and pray with them. If you've lost the whole idea of what community is supposed to be, go and talk to them. We'll sign you up for a GC. Get you connected with some other people. And we worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side and wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us, and giving is just simply part of our worship. So you have the opportunity every week. And there's still some food and stuff in the back, right? Do you eat it all? Still there. All right. Okay. So there's food and stuff in the back. Uh, grab something to eat. Get to know some other people. Because, again, you may, you may think that maybe somebody in your life just you can't stand them. Maybe, maybe they've done something, they've hurt you, or something like that. I will tell you, Jesus died for their sin as much as he died for yours. All right? And he is crucified for their sin as much as yours. And so sometimes you've got to give that to him and begin to try and restore some of those relationships again. Because he calls us, yes, to be in a relationship with him, but also with each other. This is the beauty of the gospel, that our great God has loved us and called us home. And we can do no less with those around us. 
And so we must live as a welcoming people, showing who Jesus is in all that we do. Would you guys pray with me? Father, this morning, I do ask that we as your people would understand the great grace that you have given to us. And that would, we would actually truly live in that. That it wouldn't be just words that we say, but it would be actions that we do. Father, that we would be able to be those who, who cheer each other on. That we wouldn't take what we maybe know about somebody and what they've done in the past, but allow your redemption to change them and make them new. That we could pray the best for people around us. And that we could honor your image in the people you have created. By first and foremost lifting you up and pointing to you in all things. But secondly, living lives of fellowship and connection, offering living waters flowing between us as your people so that your great grace is greater known. Father, your love is more extravagant than we could ever imagine. And when we truly get a full glimpse of it, we become undone as you, as our Father, seeks out us as your children and restores us to hope and life again. I ask that you would teach us how to live that hope and life outside of these walls throughout this week, throughout our lives, so that you are more greatly glorified and honored by all that we do. Amen.